Hi, everyone, and welcome to another one of my Gaudi Mitzvah's 22 podcasts and YouTube videos. And uh, I get a lot of uh, messages uh, from uh, emails and so forth from a lot of my readers on the blog or readers of my stuff in the Catholic, National Catholic Register, Catholic World Report. Since I talk so much about communio theology, resource month theology, and my claim is that it is the, the dominating theology of the 20th century of the Second Vatican Council, it is the key to the church's theological future. It was the dominating theology of, say, Pope Benedict, John Paul II, and so on. So, you know, in other words, I, I think progressivism and sort of radical traditionalism are both dead ends theologically, uh, and that the, the, the best path forward is to pursue race source month. So then I get all these emails from people saying, well, what is race source month? So I have assembled the greatest the, the, what is the, the dream team? I've assembled the dream team here uh, to our former students of mine. One is not. I won't hold that against her. <laughs> all right. But they're all professors, teachers, assistant professors. I don't I don't want to get into titles at the St. Bernard School of Theology up in Rochester, New York. And uh, at least on my screen below me here, Dr. Matthew Cooner is the dean of the uh, uh, the St. Bernard School of Theology. He also got his Ph.D. at Ave Maria University. And you got your M.A. at the John Paul II Institute, in Washington, D.C. He's also and most importantly, a former student of mine who learned everything he now knows from somebody else, not me. <laughs> and uh, uh, seriously, Matt, I couldn't be prouder of you. You are uh, you have you have far exceeded, uh, you know, my levels of expertise. So I'm very, very happy to have you here to discuss these things. So uh, my I'm going to don't mind, Danny, I'm going I'm going by uh, sort of. Uh, the fact that there's two PhDs ahead of you here. All right, Lisa Lacona. Uh, what's that? I don't have a PhD, so I hope you're counting yourself there. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Well, I'm. I'm okay. Let me get this cursor here. I'm going to delete you out now. Okay. No, no. All right. So, but you do teach at the Saint Bernard School yes. of Theology. I have, a, I, have a, I have a licentiate. Oh, a licentiate. Well, okay. Well, that's the same thing. Well, well. and where did you get your licentiate? At the John Bolton Institute. Exactly. I knew that uh, <laughs> somewhere embedded in my brain. You can see how much preparation I do for these things. Uh, actually, it's been a very, very busy morning and I didn't get time to do my usual prep. But anyway, okay. and then off uh, over in the other frame here is Daniel Drain, who also does not have a Ph.D., nor does he have a licentiate. But he's <laughs> almost he's almost done with his Ph.D. at the John Paul II Institute He is also a former student of mine from DeSales University. Uh, he, too, has uh, taken on uh, uh, genius status, in my view. Uh, Lisa, I would accord you genius status, but I, I don't know okay. you. So I don't want to be accused of being I'll sexist. I'll just balance it all I, out. I'm saying that <laughs> the, two, the two dudes are geniuses, but you're not. I'm sure your genius far exceeds both of them and mine. Certainly, I'm not a genius. Uh, but anyway, so uh, and Daniel, what is your dissertation topic for all the viewers out there? It's on uh, freedom and von Balthasar, but trying to solve some of the universal salvation hell questions. Uh, Wade my oh, way to that tiresome debate. And uh, I don't know why we bother reading Balthasar since he was a heretic, but uh, good God, um, good for you. Good for you. Right. You know, he's a universalist and all that. Uh, but no, that's a great topic and it needs to be discussed because there's much misunderstanding around that. OK, enough preliminaries. Everybody knows me, Dr. Larry Chap. Uh, and well, I hope so. If you're watching this. Uh, and so let's launch right into it. I, I, I'm going to just begin with a very generic question. 
And I'm going to begin with Lisa uh, this time around. Uh, the last time I had you on, Lisa, it, it, it took like half an hour before we finally got around to you. So I want to be sure I get to you first today. Uh, and then we'll go to Matt and then we'll up to, go to Danny. And I want you all to answer the same question. And maybe you can then build off of each other and piggyback on each other. Uh, what exactly is communio theology? And is it different from, is it, a, is, it a, is it a species under the genus resourcement theology? You know, are there, because sometimes people ask me that, what's the difference between communio and resourcement theology? Is there a difference? Uh, and, and then what, what exactly is it? And maybe that could include a little bit of the history behind it and, and then give us a sort of precis of, of what the essence of it is. So go ahead, Lisa, I'll let you start. Okay. Well, I'll be perfectly honest, Larry, at the we had a little pre um, interview meeting and I very clearly indicated to my colleagues that I had to go third in every rotation. (laughs) Now I have completely screwed that up. No, 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 it's so funny. But um, so if it would be okay with you, because because actually Matthew has prepared really, really a, a little history. And I, I could give it to you, but he's going to give it much more concisely. Okay, then we I'm will. Ha- nope, nope. No, and I'm totally happy to give the color on this because I have a lot of opinions, but I actually feel like he's got a great, um, he's got a great. Uh, all right. Well, very good. I mean, I mean, he he is the dean after all. I, he is my, he is my. He's the only one of the three who has a PhD. So right. I was just, I was just trying to be polite here by starting Thank with you, you so rather much. than rather than waiting a half an hour like we did last time. So and in oh, go general, ahead. Larry, let me just tell you, I love to talk first most of the time. So. <laughs> I not only like As to talk first. Know. <laughs> yeah, I talk first and then incessantly. And uh, so <laughs> my wife reminds me of that all the time. But anyway, go ahead, Dr. Cooner. I was so excited when you got called on first, Lisa. I was so excited. <laughs> so I apologize. Yeah, no, I because this is such a huge question, and I think it is a bit of a neurologic point, the amount of hot takes out there on what communio theology is, um, and then also its relationship to restaurant theology, it's huge. And I think I was I was listening to your interview with Lewis Ayers the other day, and that was a great conversation about his own pushback against the sort of illusion between communio and restaurant, some great stuff there. So, so just to say, you know, first of all, I think uh, maybe a first thing to note would be that um, we should see the communio sort of movement or theological kind of charism as distinct from just a reaction to concilium or a certain brand of interpretation of the Second Vatican Council or misinterpretation of the Second Vatican Council. I think that's really key. And a lot of people have pointed that out, Nick Healy and others, Father Jacques Survey, but it's not just reactionary uh, in the post-conciliar milieu, this sort of conservative kind of whatever response. Um, Rather, what, what I want to say, when you think of maybe communio theology, what should populate our imagination is probably a bond between friends. Um, a bond between friends that share a similar charism or, or maybe style or approach. And that would both be a sort of repudiation of the polarizations that you mentioned, Larry, uh, that were sort of tearing ecclesial unity apart, particularly in the post-conciliar days. But more to the point, friends that just loved the faith of the church in its unity and in its fullness, you know, and wanted to see that kind of come forth more radically. And one of the things that De Lubac points out in his memoirs that I think we can forget is that one of the reasons why, even during the council, but then in the immediate aftermath, one of the reasons why there were so many misinterpretations and collapses in various fronts in the church 
was, as De Lubac puts it, it was just, there was a lack of proper education going on in the church. And we think of the 50s and the 60s as sort of like this high time in the church or whatever, but there really was a kind of dearth of really great education going on, maybe seminaries, universities, you name it. And so one of the things that the founders of Communio, Ratzinger, De Lubac, Balthazar, but others too, right? Uh, Medina, Guillou, so on and so forth, they really, really, really wanted to affect an education and a formation in Catholic fullness uh, that would not be restricted to academic specialization, but would go well beyond it and would actually open up the encounter and the unity between faith and life, faith and existence, you know, and taking that as a starting point. I think that's where you really get a lot of uh, relationship to the Ressourcement movement that uh, the Communio founders and friends were one of the things that they loved and they agreed on was that we should be doing theology and we should be doing our thinking about the church uh, from the proper sources and methods. It should not be taking its guide from ecclesi ecclesiastical politics. It should not be taking its lead from sociological trends or, or whatever else, you know, modern philosophies even. It should be theology's own object, right, which is God himself um, and, and the revelation received. So for them, like the name communio, that communio does not mean sociological horizontality first, right? It means the descent, the vertical descent of communion with God in Jesus Christ, the, the participation in the communion of persons that is the Trinity. So that's kind of a, a little bit there. So, and, and, and just to say just one word on um, the relationship between ressourcement and, and the communio thing, because I think that's a really interesting question. And Larry, I really want to hear if you disagree with what I'm about to say, but um, I don't so much see communio as a species of ressourcement theology in some ways, I think I see Communio as more expansive than what we typically think of as the Ressourcement movement within theology. Um, the Ressourcement movement typically is understood as like the interwar period, uh, yes. recovery of patristics, recovery also of medieval exegesis, for example, um, among great figures like De Lubac, Chenu, Denier Lu, uh, people like this. But but I guess the, the point that I would make is that that Ressourcement movement uh, was not charismatically unified in the way that Communio was. And, and, and my big example here always is people like Congar and Chenu. Chenu, for example, you can't understand the interwar ressourcement movement without understanding Marie-Dominique Chenu. His article, What is Theology? You know, his sort of pushback against certain interpretations of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but no, he was a founder of Concilium and never joined Communio, right? So he was a key right. person within ressourcement but never sort of saw what the Communio folks saw within that bond of friendship that they shared. So there's a way in which the Ressourcement movement remained um, un underspecified maybe in terms of charism. I don't know, maybe, that, maybe it's too strong to say. Even within s some of these guys, I'm not sure that Balthazar and De Lubac and Ratzinger would agree with everything that Danielu said in his article, like Theology and the Sources, about how we need to be open to using modern philosophy as a starting point, right? As, as a sort of source in theology. So you know what I mean? Like that's that's sort of yes. what I would say. And, and that yes. communio, the other thing just that makes communio specific is I think you can't understand uh, the communio charism, as it were, apart from the Second Vatican Council, and then also the post-conciliar reception of that council. You know, I, I think that that's, that's the real key thing that, the Ressourcement guys with their debates with neo-Thomism and, and, you know, all of those questions, 
um, those don't really come up, those questions, in the founding documents of Communio. What comes up is the conciliar inspiration, Communio ecclesiology that sort of was the council's ecclesiology, and then how that was received uh, in the, in the post-conciliar age. So, all right, I hope that's a lot that we can sort of tease out, but, but yeah. Oh, yeah, and I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's true. One of the things that I think is uh, that I've said quite often is that one of the reasons why the resource month project is hard to define is that it's very uh, scattered. It's very diffused. I mean, Bouye is very different from De Lubac. De Lubac is different from Daniel Lu. Daniel Lu is different from Balthazar and Ratzinger. And they're all different from Chenu. Congar eventually lost his mind. <laughs> so, I mean, not really. I'm just kind of joking. But Congar was sort of sui generis and uh, off doing his own, his own sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was disjointed. It was, it was not as unified, uh, as people think. Uh, and so I think that that's, that's an excellent thing, but anyway, I don't want to dominate here. Matt has given the intro. Now I'm not, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to step my foot in this again. Who wants to go next? Danny, Lisa, who wants to, who wants to piggyback on what Matt just said? Lisa, why don't you go ahead? Uh oh okay. okay okay i will i will say a few things um yeah no that was i think that's a really great you you made a lot of really great important points there um matthew and i suppose i would just um emphasize a couple things here maybe just underline a couple points um the bond between friends i think is really important we were having a great conversation about this beforehand and as you, your question larry where do people start and Danny uh, made the point, you know, it's it's a local thing. It's friendship. So um, I think that we can't really discount that. We get thinking this is an intellectual thing. And it's my it's my little project that I do, my little reading project on the side of life or something like that. And this emerged as um, from, from within actual shared experiences and shared uh, common, common desires. And at the heart of that was this great desire to open up um, theology and, you know, and it has happened in Comunio. I think that's the beautiful thing about the journal Comunio itself. When you read Comunio, there's this kind of breadth of, um, of reading material that's from, you know, we'd say truly academic theology all the way to, you know, these, these recapturing these authors that, that touch on all kinds of interesting things that can appeal to so many different people. So, Madeline Delbrell or Wendell Berry or someone like that. So I think there's this beautiful opening that happens um, that actually also brings lay people into theology in a way that was not possible for the council. And I guess that was the other thing that occurred to me was, um, you know, thinking about what happens coming out of the council is that, you know, you have a, a laity that's actually not an educated laity, theologically speaking, they've been catechized and they had that kind of good solid Baltimore catechism, but um, but really no way to go deeper. And we can't live in the world without that depth, without that, um, without that kind of intellectual, spiritual depth right now. There's no way I don't think to be Catholic without that, without going to the bottom of everything. So I think that all of that happens in the journal Comunio. It's a, it's a breadth and a depth that's really, um, born of friendship. And, um, so it actually makes it it's not just, you know, and maybe we'll get more into this. It's not just these kind of seminal figures. It's it's an openness to the whole, to the whole, you know, according to the whole. That's what Catholic is. And I think that's um, maybe what makes it broader than Resource Mont as well, is that, is that whole um, approach 
we're not going to, we're not going to kind of just carve a single path through the tradition. We're going to try to let everything speak and that there's a lot of risk involved, but that's also very beautiful. And that's what we also see occur in Comunio. I think you see that unfolding of, of the beauty of the, of the Catholic whole. Okay. Before I go, I, I turn this over to Danny. Sorry, Danny. Uh, I want to ask both Matt and Lisa, since you brought this up and we're talking about the discipline resource model communio, are you saying then that we should limit our use of resource Mont to a historical categorization of a theological movement that was essentially from the late 19th century up until about the second Vatican council. And that after some time after the council that we should no longer speak of uh, an ongoing resource Mont project that we should speak instead of a communio project is is that is that what I'm hearing or am I misreading this, Matt? Yeah, labels are just hard in general. You know, I think in some ways that the resource Mont label, for example, most recently, there's this resource Mont Thomism movement that's going on. So they've sort of occupied this label as well. And from the beginning, I think your point about the figures disagreeing with each other, you know, one of the essays that I first read in the Baltazar seminar that we did at the sales was the fathers, the scholastics and ourselves, Yes, where he very much sort of pushes back against the notion that ressourcement means making the fathers the golden standard of theology, just like the Thomas made Thomas the golden standard of theology, right? That we need to sort of understand theology as a perpetual openness to the fullness of the faith, right? And so, so there's an interesting sense in which when you say ressourcement, my inclination is always to say, well, what are you resourcing? And how do you view that resourcing? Uh, are you resourcing a figure that then will be your golden thread for all of theology? Because that's, everyone has to have a tradition and an expertise. I'm not saying that we should all just be like flat generalists or something like that. But it does seem to me that Communio brings this emphasis on being open to the whole and according to the whole that a lot of ressourcement thinkers actually would not share. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. So, so I think, no, it does. I think ressourcement, it's not that we shouldn't talk about it because I think returning to the sources is precisely the answer. And the relationship between ressourcement and aggiornamento, that there's an intrinsic connection between the two and that you can't update without going backwards, right? So on and so forth. Anyone that moves forward has their feet facing backwards, right? Whatever that Chesterton quote was. Um, so I think it's it's wonderful. It just it just needs greater specificity, I think, to me. That, that's all that I would say. Yeah. And and the fact that, yes, you do have, I mean, in, in this Ressourcement Theology, a source book, for example, this, this great text. Um, yeah, Ressourcement Theology has been determined, at least in professional theology, to be a very defined period of time. Uh, but I think, I think really it's, it's in the sort of communio approach or the communio thinkers, the constellation of thinkers that you sort of see it maybe being carried on in the healthiest way after the council. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. And, and if I could just maybe jump in there, I, I think there may be a distinction, or at least when I teach this, I, I guess that I, I, this is great, you know, talking this through, because then you start to think about what, how, what am I teaching my students? Um, there's almost like a, a, a restaurant capital R and the restaurant small R. And I, I feel like that in the capital R way, you know, the movement, there is kind of a historical definition there that we can create. I think that the small R restaurant has to always be happening. And, and maybe that was the beauty of what was happening after the council. And, and then also before it was this recovery that this is, this is of the essence of the church. And the way I teach this in class is that 
you know, and you're going to, I hope, I hope you love this, Larry, but it's like laying down a cover crop. So, you know, in, in agriculture, yeah. you, what do we do? We plant a cover crop and a cover crop is a crop that its only purpose is to get down to the bottom of the soil and pull up the nutrients for the next crop. Right. And so that's kind of what racehorse mon is. It had, it had to happen, right? Because there was a lot of stuff that was way down there and it wasn't being pulled up and has to be utilized. It needs to be utilized by what comes next. And that's what I see that small R resource mod, it's cover cropping in the church and it's always happening. And it's got a, um, I think there was a moment actually in the 20th century when it, when, when all was, there was an awareness. Yeah. We really need to start getting down to the bottom and pulling some of this stuff up. And um, so I would like to, I would like to propose that it's got to keep going on that small R way, but maybe the, the big R where it, it, it becomes a reaction or there's a, there's a sense of it, if it being a reaction to other things that that might be that maybe that's already happened and it's had its day, but I, you know, I'm not that that's just, a well, I think that's exactly right. And then I'm going to go to Danny next, but when I write about resource month, when I mean a certain historical period, I, I use the big R, uh, but then I also use resource month with a small R to simply mean, I love your analogy of the cover crop, the ongoing project of returning to the sources of revelation you know, scripture, you know, very the fathers and then into the medievals and even some of the moderns and so on. Just this this deep dumpster dive to mix metaphors <laughs> uh, to, to find hid, the hidden treasures that have been that have been covered over to that extent. And then I promise you, Danny, I'm coming to you. All right. To that extent, I do think in some ways that even communal theology has to be historically contextualized as you know, as as a, as in some ways a reaction to something else, and the, that something else was the narrowing, the sclerosis of the tradition, to a very tunnel visioned uh, notion of Aquinas, and then after the Council, the narrowing of our focus to simply correlational theologies dealing with what Walter Casper once called theologies in the genitive, theology of this, theology of that, and that was and that. You, you, you began with the, the sort of boilerplate notion that you, you take the experience of moderns as normative and then you build off of that. So I think in some ways, Comunio is in some ways trying to correct that. Maybe not a reaction would be the stronger, the too strong, but correcting, correcting that by saying we have to continually uh, go back to the source. And you mentioned friendship that is a bond of friends who have a similar vision. Uh, but that similar vision is to put down that cover crop, uh, as, as least I love that metaphor. But anyway, Danny, we're like half hour into this and you haven't said a word. So now it's your turn. Anything you want to say, uh, something new something response to what's been said, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, it just strikes me that um, I suppose if race source Mont as a movement is successful, we will eventually stop using the word if it becomes the sort of active method of theology. So, I mean, in some sense, the confusion is is a good sign, I suppose. And we all say around the office, we'll we'll say resource Mont communio in the same breath. So I don't want to give the impression that we're, you know, we think the movement stopped and now we're doing this new thing. That's it's very much our approach to theology. Um let me let me begin with just a brief a brief story. So I'm I'm in charge of pastoral theology here, and um, I'll keep people anonymous. But recently, I encountered a, a leader in the community up here in Rochester, and he was asking me what I teach, what area I cover. And I, at first, I told him some of my courses, and then he asked me, you know, what kind of a theologian are you? And I said, well, I'm responsible for pastoral theology. And when I said pastoral, 
He got so excited and then disclosed to me proudly that he's been going to a, a legitimate schismatic church here in Rochester for for 20 some years. Women wow. preach the whole deal. I said the word pastoral and then he's he's grabbing my arm, he's talking to me, he's saying about all the wonderful things that happened in their community and and on the one hand I was happy to, you know, make a connection with this guy and make him feel like he could still talk to people in the church, but on the other I was just absolutely horrified that the word pastoral meant an instant translation to, you know, whatever he thinks that the church ought to have been. And that, um, that called to mind a lot of the work I did last semester, I did this deep dive into Vatican II for a course I was teaching. And, and I want to get your thoughts on some of this, but um, it brought to mind just to, to, to get to the, the character or the charism of communio. I want to say that communio is pastoral and is about accompaniment, but I dread saying those words out loud often. But what I mean is, is this sense, and this is Rotzinger talking about. Um, this is in theological highlights of Vatican II. You probably you probably know this passage well, Larry. But this is early on. He's talking about um, the sort of aim of the Council Fathers and the debates going on about what these documents are supposed to be. So insert here all of the the post-conciliar troubles about, is this a theological, is it merely pastoral, whatever. This is Ratzinger's take on, on, on pastoral. And these words, um, yeah, just, just listen. He says, pastoral should not mean nebulous without substance, merely edifying, meanings sometimes given to it. Rather, what was meant was positive care for the man of today, who is not helped by condemnations, and who has been told for too long what is false and what he may not do. Modern man really wishes to hear what is true. He has indeed not heard enough truth, enough of the positive message of faith for our own time, enough of what the faith has to say to our age. Pastoral should not mean something vague and imprecise, but rather something free from wrangling and free also from entanglement and questions that concern scholars alone. It should imply openness to the possibility of discussion in a time which calls for new responses and new obligations. Pastoral should mean, finally, speaking in the language of Scripture, of the early church fathers, and of contemporary man. Technical theological language has its purpose and is indeed necessary, but it does not belong in the kerygma and in our confession of faith. Okay, so I see the emergence, therefore, of communio as a journal, as a movement, as, as this something broader than an intellectual project where Rotzinger and the other guys are so desperate to actually be pastoral, to actually accompany, and thereby to, to of course, carry within it the proper interpretation of the council and its aims. But, you know, in that sense, I, I and we here around the office too, are always resistant applying the, the title school to Comunio in that sense, because we're also kind of equally resistant sometimes to saying that Comunio should be pastoral, because we mean pastoral in this sense, but people hear that and they think you want women priests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know what you make of that, Larry. But that seems to me that the the real richness, at least that I encountered as a student, uh, and and further on in graduate studies and so on through Comunio, is um, is this dynamic of speaking in the language of Scripture, of the Church Fathers, and of contemporary man. You know, it's it's Sheen's image of the Bible and the newspaper, but it's it's Scripture, Church Fathers, and, and contemporary man, that kind of thing. That's the real. That's how accompaniment happens. It's 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 speaking with all the languages of the church in that sense, but but to the present issues, in a way that's not that that rises above the polarizations, that rises above, although it can make use of the academic jargon. But that's not even its primary goal: is to speak to academics. It's it's 
yeah, that that real sort of, I mean, to use a wow. CL term, Lisa, that, that real encounter with with the humanity of, of each person. I think that was Comunio's aim. That's not just Vatican II. That's when these guys started this international conversation built out of friendship. That's what they were trying to do in each different national context. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, gosh, there's so much packed into what you just said there. Um, and it corroborates, you know, one of my pet hobby horses, uh, which which is that what we're witnessing today is a bit of a, a rec- although a little bit different, a bit of a recrudescence of old fashioned 1970s warmed over uh, kind of progressivism. I know that's kind of vague, but uh, as, as an old man who lived through that period, I can tell you that the word that we most hated when I was in seminary was pastoral yep. uh, because pastoral was a synonym for don't pay attention to, to doctrine. Don't pay attention to dogmas. Don't talk about those things. Don't preach about those things. People don't care about those things. Uh, and it, it sort of means also blessing the zeitgeist, uh, blessing the culture wherever it is, and just allowing people to, to do whatever the heck it is that that they do to bless their current opinions and so on. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, so your, your example, you met this gentleman, you know, sort of corroborates my point. Well, that, that whole mentality is still with us. It did not die. It just sort of like a little slow under JP two and Benedict. It was like a smoldering ember that has now flamed back up. Um, but it's an important, it's an important, uh, question to have because one of the things that also annoys me is when I run into then the opposite traditionalists who say uh, we don't have to pay attention to the Second Vatican Council because after all, by its own self definition, it was only a, only a pastoral council. OK, it, uh, it issued no new dogmas. It made no new doctrines. Everything was merely past. Even the dogmatic constitutions don't anything new. It's just all pastoral, pastoral turtles all the way down. Uh, which which betrays actually ironically a kind of liberal idea of what of what is meant by pastoral all right and my point would be that the very the pastoral project of sec, of the second vatican council was precisely a, re, a theological christocentric reinterrogating of of the tradition all right and, and and so the two things go hand in hand the pastoral and the theological um, and also, finally, I'll, and I'll put my last little fine point and, then, and we'll, we'll turn it over to the others. Uh, the experience I've, you know, when I started my blog three years ago, I thought it would last two months. About 10 of my former students would read it and, 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 and that would be that and I'd be done. But it took off and it went viral. It's now read all over the world. And I'm not saying that to toot my horn. I'm saying it to make a point, which is when I started it, I, I started it in order to fill a gap that I saw in sort of popular social media for people who wanted theology, who want, but theology written in a way that an average person largely can understand. They might have to Google a few big words, but, you know, largely can understand. And what I discovered is there is this powerful thirst out there amongst educated Catholics for writings of substance that are necessary, that, but are also accessible. And that is what I think Ratzinger was pointing to in that quote that you just gave. All right. We're not going to give we're not going to hand, you know, an average Catholic, you know, Wahrheit by by Balthasar. All right. Here, read this better in German if you can. Uh, No, we're not going to give them that. Uh, But that doesn't mean we're just going to sit down and make dioramas of the resurrection and clothespin Jesus arts and crafts time, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, 
Uh, I'd use stronger language, but that's what I that's the shit I grew up with. All right. I'm going to say it. That's the shit I grew up with. OK, that was my catechism. All right. You know, I can still picture the little cotton balls I stuck on the blue above the sepulcher as I, you know, the clothespin Jesus was coming out of the tomb. That was my catechism right there. All right. And and, you know, and that was for older kids. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting kind of uh, ranty and ravey here. But anyway, uh, so I'm going to go back full circle back to Matt. Do you want to add to anything that uh, has been said? You know, just to say, this is the mission of Communio, just as a sort of pap of this. Experience teaches us that leading a Catholic life today is only possible where the mystery has retained its complete depth, where dogmas are not perceived as problems, are curtailed in their essential dimensions and reduced to purely human understanding, or where secondary forms of tradition are not selected as criteria for affiliation with the church. Both extremes engender fanaticism, while genuine communion will only thrive based on the serenity shared by the children of God. Only by assuming a non-polemic role of tranquility in the center will it be possible to assume genuine responsibility for the whole. I mean, that's quite something. That's And, yeah. and then from there, he goes on to talk about how this is not for academic specialists. Uh, he says, all the communio wishes to accomplish is merely to help clarify the issues that confront the contemporary Christian by utilizing the shining depths of our common faith and in so doing to counteract widespread feelings of uncertainty. That's, it. that's also why you founded your blog, right? I mean, in that yes. sense. And, and that's where I, I, just to maybe follow up on that from the perspective of Danny's claim that the communio movement or whatever you want to call it is not a school of theology. And there, I, I would say that I, when I hear school, I think very much of like Jules Sand's understanding of school, which is a more negative sense where you know, he narrates this beautiful passage where he says, you know, a school of theology is what happens when you take a master who had his vision set so in, in, in an enraptured sense upon either the mystery of being or the mystery of revelation, and he was consumed with it, right? And then the school students, pupils come along, and instead of looking at the mystery of revelation or of being, they're looking at the master, right? And then, and yeah, then but yeah, that, yeah. of course, is, is uh, a diminution, right? I mean, over time, especially as it goes on. And so a real, a true movement would be the master inviting everyone to look with him at what is being perceived, right, uh, in that way. So, so I think in, in that sense, the communio movement is not a school. And I think it's funny because I know something that comes up often that you mentioned, Larry, is R.R. Uh, Reno's, I think it's his essay on like the heroic generation or whatever about how yeah. these guys yeah. like Balthazar Ratzinger de Lubach, they're, they're unfollowable, like they're unschoolable, right? Like they can't beget a school as if that's like a negative thing. But I think actually they were trying to like, they set up booby traps, like to make themselves unschoolable. I think they knew this in a way because they don't want yeah. you to be doing that. They want you to be looking with them at what they're seeing. And so if I like just in thinking, and I propose this as something for discussion, because when I think about what does characterize the communion movement, then if it's not meant to be a school based on these founding figures where we're just going to be parroting their thought and, and continuing their work as if it's like the same thing that commensatorial Thomism did, not that that's all bad or, or whatever, but um, then what is it? And I was just reading recently um, that incredible passage on the problem of, of Christian prophecy from Ratzinger. It was in Trenti Giorni or, or whatever. Um, and he comments in there that Balthazar pointed out to him that every great theological movement is, is begotten by a mystical charism, 
or a saintly charism, right? A, a prophetic element that gives birth to it. And of course he brings up Francis and Bonaventure, Dominic and Thomas. He brings up Adrienne and Balthazar, right? So on and so forth, Benedict and Scholastica. Um, and what I think is so interesting about that is uh, that for the Second Vatican Council's relationship with Communio, I kind of would want to make the claim that Communio, this movement is begotten by the prophetic charism of the council, right? So it's not so much yes. a saintly figure perhaps, but it is the prophetic charism of the Second Vatican Council that is carried forward. And I think that gets to your point, Danny, about why that description, Ratzinger's description of what it means for the Second Vatican Council to be a pastoral council could exactly be mapped onto what it means for Communio to be a theological movement. Because there really is, it's this attempt to carry on not just the conceptual positions of the council, but the very prophetic vision of what it means to interact with the world, of what it means to be the church, so on and so forth, what it means to be Christocentric in one's entire life and thought, so on and so forth. So that would be my, my, my proposal, is that it's not a school of thought, but it is a theology generated by the charism of the Second Vatican Council, um, in the same way that Bonaventure's theology was in some sense generated by the charism of Francis. So I don't know what you all think about that. I mean, that's it's sort of a proposal. I love that. I agree with that. I think that's, uh, I've been saying for a long time, even before I started my blog, I mean, way back when, uh, that the council is misunderstood and that it, it's essentially, it, it's a pastoral council, but in a prophetic register, uh, that that it's, it's, it's a turn to the world uh, in order to understand the world, but also to prophetically critique the world through the lens of Christ. Uh, and this is the part then I think that got lost after after the council in so many ways. But Lisa, did you want do you want to add something here? I, I'd love to. Um, first of all, I want to just thank you, Larry. This is so exhilarating for me to have this conversation, and and I'm not at all surprised that your your work is going viral because um, I think people want to hear these conversations. Like actually, it's 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 a lot to bring forth a conversation about what does pastoral mean. It's a, it's very risky feeling, but it's also very exciting and important. So I'm I'm just grateful for the chance to do this. Um, I think what I was thinking when you were talking about that idea of blessing the zeitgeist, you know, was that the, the council's charism is to suffer the zeitgeist with with everybody here, <laughs> with all of us together, right? And um. So it always brings back me back to the saints, and I, I'm gonna. This is kind of a really short, but hopefully it's a, it's a coherent final word. Um, so I'm doing a course this summer on American saints and blessed. So I'm I'm including a little section on Dorothy Day, which was super exciting. So um, and I know you know her better than all of us put together here, um, Larry. But maybe. Um, what <laughs> what really struck me um, was well, there's a lot of things that struck me, but one of them was that. Um, when Peter Morin, um, when they first come together, right, when he seeks her out um, because of her writing, and he already has a program, one of the first things he does is tell her to read the lives of the saints. And he says, he, this is the way you're going to get educated in, in, in the church history is through the lives of the saints. And I think that's, um, that's one of the places to start for people is to start letting their let let themselves let yourself kind of become immersed in the lives of the saints and start to see the world through their eyes because that's all a saint is is someone who suffers the zeitgeist that's what it is to be a saint and i think that's at the heart of the program the the communio program that's the heart of balthazar theology and sanctity and i and i think that it's we're we're almost just at the beginning of that program there's a lot of there's a lot of um 
a lot of deep dumpster diving to do. I'm really fascinated by the dumpster diving versus the cover crop now because I feel like I'm seeing, you know, Dorothy Day and Peter Moran right there. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm, leave I'm it a, there. <laughs> I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of dumpster diving. So okay, great. So hey, you, you know, no slight to the two dudes on the bench here. Uh, but you've come up with the two. I've just written them down. If you notice me looking to the left here, suffer the zeitgeist. I love that. And then the, the cover crop metaphor. I like that, too. Those are both sheer genius, sheer, pure genius, if you ask me. Now, uh, I, I'm glad you brought up to uh, Peter Morin's what, what he called his program, which always makes me chuckle because he was probably for a, to a lot of people, somebody that you would just would you peter please shut up uh because by all accounts he was a real chit 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 he would dominate a cover because he was a guy just filled with an enthusiasm for the church's theology filled with an enthusiasm for ideas all right and so he had this whole big idea in his brain as to how we could move the church forward in holiness and he called it his program and he was talking incessantly about my program the program the program and I'm so happy that I think you have really put your finger on what the essence of his program was, the lives of the saints, which which makes Morin's vision very Balthazarian, uh, because one of his visions was precisely the coming together of theology and sanctity, that the saint is the person who sees, who sees better. Than, I got that from David L. Schindler. Uh, I can't remember where wrote that quite often, right? That the saint is somebody who sees differently than other people. And that's why it's so critical. And I would say for, I would define in many ways, the essence of communio as suffering the zeitgeist in order to see differently, see through the lens, the eyes of sanctity, the eyes of, uh, in the eyes of the saints. So thank you for that, Lisa. I think that, that that's fantastic. Danny, do you, do, do you want to add a uh, piggyback and then we'll come back to Matt? Just to say, um, you know, in my experience of of growing into academic theology, I had um, it was your fault. I had an early exposure to von Balthasar, um, <laughs> and I, I think with that early exposure to von Balthasar, I discovered later, and this I'm not blaming you for. Uh, I discovered later that um, I had gotten so kind of quickly highfalutin in my theology, you know, capable of the multisyllabic words and the complex ideas that when I got really into von Balthasar on the question of hell. And there I met von Speyer's writings, her, the sort of mystical core that actually animates everything in von Balthasar. Uh, it was almost too late. And, you know, I had to take a step back and, and quite a, a, a bit of time to, as it were, shore up my spiritual center to understand, uh, to understand the vision of von Balthasar, the, the vision of Comunio in general. But, but the point of this example is that, um, when folks encounter communio, whether it's through articles or through, you know, listening to things like this with, with us or with you, I hope and suggest that, you know, when you read an article where you're finding a heroic theologian who's sort of at bat for you and punching against an issue, which I think is how a lot of people first find communio articles, you know, something that, that uh, especially probably uh, issues in the last 20 years, someone really writing against a hot button cultural issue you need to shore that up with the deep spiritual center that's also present, probably in the same article, but if not in, in the same issue. In other words, it's 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 dangerous to to learn um, such fine sword fighting techniques and not remember that there's a sort of 
culture of chivalry undergirding it, for example. Okay, you, know, you just came up with another. So you're in genius range now here. Sword fighting <laughs> techniques. All right, I'm writing that one down too. Okay, very good. Okay, but go ahead, the Danny. Point being that that um, you know, learning how to fight outside of wartime is really dangerous. Uh, <laughs> it's also it's also dangerous to learn how to fight in wartime when you don't have it like a common love for humanity in the sense that like. For me, the small example again was was to to really get in it with on hell with von Balthazar and then to encounter von Speyer and be like, oh my God, now I realize I didn't really understand him at all. Everything is shot through with this deep, in this case, unity of theology and sanctity. This I'm going to interrupt you once you keep saying these great things. Yeah. I this is full confession. I am one of those Balthazar scholars who, when I was a young graduate student at Fordham doing Balthazar. I was convinced that I didn't have to pay any attention to Adrian, none whatsoever. She was a complete irrelevance that Balthazar was waxing hyperbolic when he said, oh, you really can't understand my work if you yeah. don't understand her work. And it was only then later in my own career, like you, where I realized, duh, no, wrong. Uh, you really do need to understand Adrian. But anyway, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, just the sense that 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 she's the hot stuff there. <laughs> but in the sense that that um what animates <laughs> I can hear Lisa laughing through the walls. Which is really funny. Um, That's funny. What animates von Balthazar is is this discipleship to Ignatius. This everything is shot through with the exercises and there's a danger in encountering an errant communio article that you really like that you don't see where that comes from, that that springing from a mystical or prophetic vision. And so just to just to say, you know, in terms of places to start, if you're going to read a loose communio article, also grab prayer or something like that and, and do both at once, if not this alone and first. Um, OK, you held that up for the sake of my viewers and those who are just listening, because some people just listen to this on podcast. What you just held up was Hansa was from Balthazar's book on prayer. There we go. Yeah. Great book. One of my favorites of all time. Actually, another one of my favorite uh, Balthazar texts that I would recommend to listeners and viewers is Balthazar's uh, book, Christian State of Life, oh, yeah. uh, which I think was one of the most, that was one of the most important books in my entire theological education. I was blown away mm -hmm. when I read, and not a little, I mean, I was scared when i got done reading like oh my god i'm a well, worm and, and no man I, I i don't think i'm even a person <laughs> i'm not really a person yet you know oh my god uh yeah. but but the, in a good sense it's decentering yeah. it's just like woohoo well, uh, and and uh, forgive me for the the indulgence but no, the book with the identical title christian state of life she does she and does Fire's christian state of life is the warmest most hysterical most practical like Here's how to discern your vocation without being a freak to the people around you. Like that's von von Speyer's version of it, and the fact that that undergirds von Balthasar's uh, to see that too late was was a real shame. And now now I love it and have the whole vision. But yeah, I read think her, though read, yeah. I know what she meant by that. All right, uh, you know, or what you mean by you know, is the, don't be a freak while you're pursuing your vocation. But I think we need more freaks for Jesus. These, I mean, I'm I'm currently on a project. Let's, if I could turn it into an acronym to put on a red hat, it would be let's make Catholicism weird again. Uh, and and I think we need to re weird in the in sense of rewilding the whole project. Uh, but I know what she meant. You know, like you know, there, there's good weird and then there's bad weird. You know, there's good weird as in people who sit on a stylite for eight years, and then there's 
bad weird little kids that eat paste that, that's 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 bad weird okay uh, but it, I don't know. That just popped into my head. I don't know. This is how my brain works. But anyway, Matt, back to you. Lisa, you had unmuted. Did you want to hop in on something there? I saw. Oh, I saw I'm you. sorry. You are a very good Zoom teacher. <laughs> you noticed that I unmuted. <laughs> We've been doing that for like three years. I yeah. know. I know. No. Wow. I, I need to learn this trick of noticing when people <laughs> unmute. You yeah. Do. <laughs> Um, well, we teach on Zoom at St. Bernard's, so you know you start to get very sensitive. Oh, my <laughs> wife Carrie is a master of Zoom. Yeah, I bet she, she is. Yeah. You know, she's been doing this for decades. I'm just new to. I'm a complete luddite. I can, if it doesn't have a hit record now button, I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to edit anything. Like I just had an expletive earlier. I want to edit that out, but I'd probably ruin the whole video if I did. Uh, but anyway, Lisa, you're unmuted. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, that, okay, I, by the way, that should be a whole podcast. Lisa <laughs> unmuted. <laughs> um, there we no, go. I just want to put a plug in from, for Audrey and Von Speyer, actually. I, I, um, I had a kind of a meeting with both. Well, actually I met Audrey and Von Speyer before I met Baltazar and I fell in love with her. I wrote my, my bachelor's thesis on Audrey and Von Speyer way back when nobody who knew who she was. Um, and I, I still, I continue to think that, that she's a really a beautiful way in for a lot of people. Um, and I would say handmaid of the Lord would be a great entry point for her thought, or maybe the beginning of world of prayer, since we're talking about great books that, because Christian state of life, Balthazar, I mean, I agree with you on that, Larry, it just, it's a, a masterpiece. Um, but my, I think that you can go to the heart, you can kind of be introduced to the center of a lot of this thought in, in a maybe a gentler way. And um, and I think she's a good person for that. So that's really all I wanted. What to do you think of? OK, so we've got her book, Christian State of Life. Uh, we, we've got I would also recommend her book, Confession, Oh yes. uh, which fabulous. is just a fabulous, fabulous book. Um, so, I, you know, it's just go, go get an Ignatius Press catalog. OK, Mark Brumley, if you're listening, I've just made you happy. All right. Go get an Ignatius Press catalog and uh, go to the Adrian von Speyer section and, uh, and and get yourself some of those. But because uh, because, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually, as I mentioned, late to really coming to appreciate her as much as I sh she should be appreciated. And I actually started reading more of her when I went to defend her and her relationship with Balthazar from the absurd attacks against her by Ralph Martin. And I don't want to get into a hole down. And I don't want to get into sword fighting techniques with uh, Ralph Martin, as uh, Danny would say. Uh, but then my point is that simply I thought that book was so grossly unfair in dealing with the bunch. Buyer. that's when I first started doing a deep dive in, into her writings, actually. And that was just a few years ago. Uh, so but it's never too late never too late to learn. Now I've read just about everything there is in English that she that she's written. But anyway, now back to you, Matthew. Quick story on Von Speyer, also her commentary on John, those four volumes. Oh, I, I yes. think if I'm not mistaken, I think that's where Balthazar would say, you know, to start with her because I, and I have to say too, I remember when we were doing the Balthazar seminar to sales and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was reading and I was hearing a lot of criticism of Von Speyer it was really the reading of the commentary on John that just convinced me because it was some of the best spiritual reading I've ever done in my life. You know, you'd read a paragraph and it's one of those like texts where like you can't keep reading. You just have to stop and, and reflect. Yeah. You know? Takes and, you um, a long time. Yeah. 
great story about this, Mikkel Waldstein, uh, who directed my dissertation, also directed your work on Von Speyer, right, at Notre Dame, Lisa, so, so a lot of connections there. He was studying at the Biblicum in Rome because when he met Balthazar, uh, I think in Basel, uh, Balthazar said, we need more scripture scholars. So that's what he left to do. So he's studying at the Biblicum and he was riding every day with a bunch of nuns into the city of Rome from outside of Rome. And every day as he was studying, he would read von Speyer's commentary on John on the way in and on the way out and, and back home. And he left from there to do his PhD at Harvard on the Gospel of John and the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospel. But he would say the insight that he got both as a Christian and as a scholar from her commentary was just, it was just set, setting the foundation for him, which, which is beautiful, you know, a beautiful thing. Um, but just to say, you know, the, the, the point, I just wanted to maybe return to this polarization because it can, it can sound like, like when we talk about abiding in this tranquil center and, and going for the whole, you know, katahollan according to the whole, it can sound maybe a little bit um, underspecified likewise, like what does that actually look like or what does that mean, you know? And Balthazar has a great passage I'd love to read. And, and this is from his um, a short primer on unsettled Sure, layman, go ahead. Yeah. Or unsettled layman. And he says this. However, um, he says, the present situation is characterized by a strong polarization in the church. So much so that a dialogue between progressives and traditionalists succeeds only rarely. This is like in the 70s. It's the same is true today. The camp of the progressives seeks to conquer the center that of the traditionalists holds the fortress tenaciously as if it defended the center. <laughs> Both sides distance themselves from the men in office and the small number of theologians who seek to maintain the true center. He goes on, where should one look to see a dawn? One should look to where in the tradition of the church something truly spiritual appears, where Christianity does not seem a laboriously repeated doctrine, but a breathtaking adventure. Why is all the world suddenly looking at the wrinkled but radiant face of the Albanian woman in Calcutta? What she is doing is not new for Christians. Las Casas and Peter Claver did something similar. But suddenly the volcano that was believed extinguished has begun to spit fire again. And nothing in this old woman is progressive, nothing traditionalist. She embodies effortlessly the center, the whole. So just a beautiful thing to yeah. sort of gather up so many threads that the saints really are sort of the, the center. And, and that would be one recommendation would be um, to be really, really vigilant in ones. Cause I think Danny, what you're saying about recovering sort of your own spiritual foundations and your own spiritual orientation in the midst of study and reading community articles, also retaining your spiritual center when you're engaging in these progressive and traditionalist kind of paradigms, because I think something that's key that a lot of these guys saw was that the progressives and the traditionalists share a common ground, right? There's a symmetry between them in a rejection of tradition as ongoing and present here and now in this moment, in the persons that are alive right now. You know, traditionalism like wants to glorify the past as the criterion of orthodoxy simply, and the progressives want to sort of put us on the road to something in the future. Uh, but, but really to abide in that center is to abide in the hick at nook, right? The here and now that the spirit is moving today in the church, in my life. Right. And that's what the saints do. That's exactly the, 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 the sort of spirituality of the divine presence in any given moment. And I think there's a, there's a spiritual disposition where the, the progressive versus traditionalist 
thing can be a cyclone that just pulls you in and draws you down and sucks you away from that center, that elevated center, which is that sort of ministry of Christ's presence here and now through the spirit. So I think just maintaining that through prayer, through friendship, like they did, um, and knowing that that dynamic between the two, it really is a cyclone that, that will draw you in if you're not careful. And there isn't that sort of chastity of the heart in that way. So I don't know if you guys have thoughts wow. on that, but yeah. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that you got that quote. To, and to my uh, listeners and viewers, the book he was quoting from was A Short Primer for Unsettled Layman, which is a book I recommend highly by, by Von Balthazar to people who say, write to me, How, what book do I read by Balthazar first? And, uh, if, you know, the, to those who are not theologically trained, I think that's a, it's a, especially a lay person who wants to know about uh, this kind of theology precisely because they're unsettled. And so it's a great. And plus that quote, Matt, if you go to my copy of that book, which is really shop worn now, I have that quote bracketed and a little asterisk and the word key exclamation point next. Because, you know, I have all these notations when I write a little check means that's important. And then a little nota bene means that's even more important. But I write key with asterisks. That means pay attention to this first when you read this book. So I'm so glad you read that quote. Uh, I think that's a fantastic quote. But then also I want to comment on because uh, I think it's so true this thing about the center and the center means living in the hick at noon. Uh, but by center, and I want to be very clear about this. None of us means you've got progressives on one side, you've got trads on the other. Therefore we're occupying some kind of a conservative middle, a neocon middle, or that we're conservatives, which means we're trads, but not quite as tradie as the trads in, in that bad sense of trad. All right. Uh, but, but we're not. Uh, at least I'm, I don't want to speak for you guys. In my case, I would say that there were radicals. Uh, it, it's it's it, it, in the good of the meaning that we're going to the root. We're going back to the root. The center is ultimately Christ, which is why the saints are so important, because it is the saints which are exegeting Christ uh, for our time and for our era. They are suffering the zeitgeist, as Lisa said. So I want to be very, very clear. Sometimes a lot of my uh, people that email me stuff, they sort of misunderstand me as, oh, you're claiming that you're above the fray, that you're some sort of conservative that's holding off. And, and that's that, that's not true. It's 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 something else. And in many ways, I'm critical of what passes for conservative Catholicism uh, as, as well. But we could talk about that some other time. But anyway, um, Danny. Did you want to say something? Yeah, you know, I don't want to I don't want to do a, an entirely different direction. But but one thing that's been uh, kind of lingering in the back of my mind, um, <clears throat> at least when I was at the Institute, I don't know when he he got on this or, or if if they've gotten off. But George Grant, the, the Canadian philosopher, was was huge for, for Schindler and those guys. And, Technology. Yeah. Yeah, technology, but but Grant has this um, this now famous quote. There's a biography of him that has this worked into the title. But but I just want to I want to play with this for a second. This idea that um, because of Comunio's role of tranquility in the center, that actually because of that, uh, kind of nothing's out of bounds for mining, for theological richness, for real encounter, for the possibility of accompanying people who are super lost. And here's this quote from Grant. He says. Any intimations of authentic deprival are precious because they are ways through which intimations of good, unthinkable in public terms, may appear to us. Now, that's in sort of philosophical language. You could JP2 spoke about this in the language of the, the sort of positivity of shame, right? When you when you realize that something's really wrong, it, it indicates in a, in a reverse way 
you know, what's good in the world. And I think that's part of the beauty of communio as a, as a style or as a charism is that, um, you can, Lisa and I might disagree on this a little bit, but you can like really appreciate what's awesome in Nietzsche. You can do deep dives and like really think with him and retrieve what's good. This is a lot of Balthazar's approach to, to so many of the moderns, right? It's like, I'm going to go with Hegel every way except from his starting point and, and mind what's good from there. But I think of that that approach to theology or academic work, I, I think of the possibilities if we really take that seriously for for things like pastoral accompaniment. With all of the qualifiers that we need, you know, mutatis mutandis, changing what needs to be changed in, in, in all of these cases. But um, because Comunio takes this role of tranquility in the center, um, just as Christ did, you're able to descend uh, rather far, <laughs> rather far into the world, uh, into situations of darkness, um, and and bring with it, of course, that tranquil center and, and show that. And, and that's reflected in all sorts of positive ways. Communio people tend to love poets you've never heard of. They tend to, uh, a lot of us I've found really like David Bowie and Prince, even though there's that, you know, who, who knows what they, what they lived morally, but like, there's something going on there. And we really like, or how that. about Bob Marley? Marley. Exactly. Yeah. Schindler was huge on Marley. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, but do you see what I mean? The sense that um, yeah. because we don't have any walls up, the, the world's open to us to appreciate, to speak to, 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 to all of that and to allow saints to emerge from those places too. Yeah. To encourage sanctity in and through and out of those situations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that, Daniel, I always call you Danny. I don't know, Daniel, Danny. Uh, I also used to call you a few other things, but we won't go into that. But uh, <laughs> uh uh, you know, it's not my idea. It's the idea of a lot of people that God sends to his church in any era saints that are sort of tailored to that era. And in my belief, my strong belief, it's animated my whole career, is that modernity is dominated by a radical unbelief that goes far beyond agnosticism or atheism. It's what I call the nullification of God, the nullification of the of the very category as something uh, that is even important in the remotest way to attend to. Uh, and, and that is, and whether we want to admit it or not, that uh, virus has infected us all uh, uh, in the sense that there is absolutely no way any of us, even if we swim upstream against culture, which we must, can transcend our culture utterly and completely and shed ourselves of the person forming matrix that our culture forms for us. And therefore, I think one of the great um, things in, in the spiritual life of many modern Catholics is an inability to frankly and honestly admit to themselves that they don't believe anything. And, and, I, and I don't mean that that means they don't have faith. They have faith, but they don't believe anything. And, and I have to be careful when I say that. And, and so so you, you look at modern saints, so from, like look at Ratzinger in the beginning of Introduction to Christianity, and he talks about Therese of Lisieux, and he says, even though she was raised by this Catholic family and so forth, you read her writings, and all she wants to write about is her temptations to atheism, that she feels this abyss below her opening up, and Ratzinger writes about this is the characteristic of modernity, that no matter how deep our faith, we feel in us this abyss below us that modernity has opened up for us. And so I, I agree with you, Danny, that pastoral accompaniment in this day and age, and therefore the form of that sanctity must take in this day and age and does take in this day and age is to borrow Lisa's phrase again, to suffer through and with 
the unbelief of our era, the unbelief of our age. And once again, uh, you know, quoted Mother Teresa, you know, the, talking about Mother Teresa and short primer. Mother Teresa, she wrote about her temptations to unbelief, her temptations to, to her dark, that after her initial phase as a young sister, her prayer life for most of her adult life was utterly dry, utterly and completely dry, lacking in consolations. And anyway, um, I'm kind of on a riff now. Uh, but that, that, that I think that was just so true, Danny, what you said about uh, pastoral accompaniment and, and then its relationship to sanctity. Does anybody have anything they want to add? Lisa, Matthew, go ahead and unmute if you want to speak. I mean, one thing, one thing to add that I think is so consonant with this is just to maybe return to the restaurant point with yeah. regard to communio. You know, again, with that question is like, who's resourcemen, which sources, you know, this sort of thing. I think one of the things that characterizes communio is that uh, the restaurant project is not about going back to the sources biblically, primarily going back to the sources of the fathers. It's going back to the source of all, right? It's going back to God yes. in, in a yes. way, which, which makes in some sense, maybe Benedict, the, the greatest sort of restaurant communio figure in the sense that, that that's been his call. That's his whole pontificate, right? Is the primacy of God and the recovery of God in the midst of an atheistic humanist modernity. He calls it the eclipse of God. Yeah. 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 Amen. Amen. And, and to be sort of uh, both in thought and in life, like performatively, what does it mean to return to the source? Right. And to make your life fit to those proportions. I think that's, that's sort of the ultimate ressourcement again, not getting hung up. And you can see the other sources as again, the light through the prism of, of God appearing in history. So, so on and so forth. But if you're not doing restaurant to return to the primordial source of all things, the Father through the Son and the Spirit, that, that's what that's what communio I think is about, and that's why you see. Yeah. This would be one of my arguments for why communio is, in one sense, more specific, but also uh, more open and, and universal than restaurant generally. Is that when you look at like all of the founders of communio beyond the big three? Okay, but even in the midst of the big three, Guyu, for example, was pretty much a Thomist, like, you know, and he was one of the major founders. Uh, Medina was like a sacramental theologian, you know, they did not imbibe this like clarified conceptual framework that generated this school that was very tight and, and was based on commentary. What united them was, was the return to the ultimate primordial source that is God himself. That, that was sort of the, the ultimate ressourcement. And then you can resource anything in your scholarship and your preaching and your work, you know, so on and so forth. So, so just to say that, I think, I think that's sort of, you look at these guys and you're like, what, what brought you all together? And in fact, if you look at the editorial board of the, of the original German issue, there were political scientists on there. There were publishers. You know, it was a really weird, eclectic kind yeah. of gathering of people. So, yeah. Oh, that's so true. I mean, and one could say, too, that the entirety of the Balthazarian project, I mean, uh, we could characterize it in different ways. But when I wrote my doctoral dissertation, my main point was that you could characterize the entirety of Balthazar's theology as uh, one long attempt to analyze what it means to say that revelation has credibility that it's believable uh that 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 it presents god to us in other words that that we're not endlessly dissecting it for this other academic reason it's not simply with an eye towards correlational pastoral thing it's an eye towards god the center at how do we know this god 
what are the sources of our knowledge of this God and how do those sources have credibility? Uh, and thus he develops the aesthetic, the dramatic, the logic, and, and, and unpacks all of that. But it's all, I mean, one of this, one of my favorite books from my youth, Glaubhaft ist nur Liebe, you know, only love is credible or believable. Uh, but anyway, uh, once again, I don't want to do all the talking. I, I thought that was a great, Matt, because I, I think, um, I think it is so very, very important that we understand that theology is about God, that our faith is in God, <laughs> the God of Jesus Christ. And we often, I think, sometimes forget that. Lisa, do you, do you want to uh, unmute and say anything? nothing to add? All right. <laughs> no, that was that was just a fabulous ending point. I, I love that. I mean, you're bringing so much together there, so I'm going to just leave it. <laughs> OK, well, we've, we've been on the air now for a little over an hour. So I, when we have mentioned some authors, some books and so on, uh, but I would like to go to each one of you now. I don't want to put you on the spot if you're not ready, uh, but a lot of my viewers and listeners would like to know, OK, name for me, you know, you know, maybe one or two or three books that if I want to know more about communio theology, first off, I would say, if you want to know more about communio theology, theology, why don't you subscribe to the journal Communio? That would be a good start, everyone. Subscribe to the journal Communio. It's really not that expensive, and it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and you can go to their webpage. Uh, there is a webpage. Type in Communio International Catholic Review, and you will be taken to the webpage. So that would be my first recommendation is just, you know, subscribe to Communio. But I'm going to start with Matt, and then we'll go to Lisa, and then back up to, to Danny to, to, to sort of sum up here some practical suggestions for how, you know, an educated Catholic who maybe isn't a theologian or, or anything, but educated, uh, you know, they, 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 they're capable of reading some things. OK, what would you, what would you recommend that they that they read? Let's start with you, Matt. Absolutely. And, you know, and that, that's exactly what I was going to say was if, you know, there's the academic theological kind of piece of all of the founders of, of Communio and, and those that follow in that trend. But all of them, Ratzinger, De Lubac. Balthazar, if you ever notice, a lot of them spent their lives in ministry one way or the other, be it clerical ministry, you know, so on and so forth, Balthazar as a university chaplain. Um, but they all, their, their sort of list of works is often divided. They have their works of academic theology, but then they've all produced a ton of more quote unquote popular engagements for the educated laity. And I feel like when we hear their names, we don't think of that a lot, right? We think about the Lubac on uh, nature and grace and the supernatural. We think about Balthazar with the trilogy, so on and so forth. But the number of small books that Balthazar wrote was dizzying, right? So, so just to say for a couple of those, you know, this short primer for Unsettled Layman is just wonderful. And he goes through a bunch of different topics that I think we'll all recognize, you know, be it priestly office to Mary, so on and so forth, things that are in dispute. And the same thing with this book, Elucidations. Yes, I was going to say that. Say, Very good. Yeah, yeah, this is another thing. And and literally just get it. And if you have half an hour at night and you're sitting there before you fall asleep on the couch or whatever, uh, you know, look, just open up a chapter. They're all standalone chapters and you can see they're they're all pretty short and they're just topics that are of interest and that he's just attempting to treat. A funny story about this text, um, Elucidations was really one of the beginnings of the Communio Journal because Elucidations was... Uh, what Balthazar gave the name to his early attempt to gather a bunch of different theologians and, and Catholics to write on, frankly, the mysteries of the faith in the immediate post-conciliar age in like 68, 69, 70, uh, to try to return to the source in, in that sense through the sources. 
Um, but because everyone was pulled in a number of different directions, he couldn't do this. So he ended up publishing his own contributions to the Solucidations Project, and that's this. But that made him realize that it couldn't just be a standalone book. They needed an ongoing contribution to expound the mysteries of the faith clearly, pastorally, but yet, uh, frankly, sufficiently from like an intellectual perspective. So that's another one that I would really, really recommend. De Lubac, though, is another one who wrote a lot of these things, you know, beyond the, the supernatural. And something, a book that had a tremendous impact on me was his Paradoxes of Faith. Um, I know if you're if you're super yes. busy and you just want, again, just a quick read, a quick sort of injection of something beautiful, this is written in like aphoristic format, which is really cool. And you just read a couple aphorisms, take it to prayer, take it to thought, so on and so forth, and then uh, sort of gather it up throughout life. So that's another that's another key uh, passage here. And then if you are, I mean, I think a lot of people uh, know of Introduction to Christianity by Ratzinger as kind of his seminal work. Um, but just think also in time, sort of a timing sense, Communio as a journal was founded in 1972. Introduction to Christianity came out in 68, 69, I think, right? And they were his lectures yeah. from that time. Yeah. And when Ratzinger talks about what eventually led up to the founding of the journal Communio, he lists a number of Baldazar's works that go from like 66, you know, his engagement at the moment of Christian witness, and then what it means to be a Christian, and then elucidations all the way up to 72. So that like 65 to 72 era. And so I think if you really want to get a flavor of what's in these founders' minds when they're thinking about what it means to do this type of theology or this charism of theology, you can't do better than Introduction to Christianity. And that's a little bit more elevated of a sense. But but notice before he goes into a commentary on the creed, what does he do? He, he thinks through the problem of what it means to believe today, right, in the yes. modern world. That's where he starts. And so I think, I think it's a beautiful example and a witness of like what a communio approach to theology looks like performatively. So okay, I think that, uh, absolutely introduction to Christianity. I read in 1979 as a young seminarian undergraduate, and it was one of the most seminal books in, in the history of my intellectual development. It's truly, and it, you're right. It's, it's a little more elevated, but I think it's, uh, you know, my suggestion to, to my listeners and viewers too, is, is a technique, you know, for reading, you know, little books that are a little more theological, a little more elevated. You know, when I was reading Introduction to Christianity, I was 20 years old and just learning all this stuff. And so it was like trying to get a sip of water out of a fire hose. Uh, but I still got this, more than a sip. And if there, you come to a part you don't understand, move on. Keep reading until you come to a part that you do understand. And, and it will enrich you in, in very, very, just don't give up on a book because, oh, I don't understand that word. This is way beyond me. No, stick with it. Have some discipline. So I would highly recommend that. And also with regard to De Lubach, Paradox of Faith is fantastic. But just autobiographically, once again, speaking from my own past, his book, Drama of Atheist Humanism, was extremely important to me uh, because it laid out essentially his theological anthropology his Christocentric theological anthropology, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I think to the council. So I think that those, those, I, I, I'm not necessarily saying that those are my recommendations, but I'm just concurring with you. Lisa, let's go over to you. You, what are your recommendations? Okay. I'm going to do the soft entry to Comunio. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you who are out there and you're like, wait, I started an introduction to Christianity and I quit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, and I, Larry, I'm, I'm with you on that. Like that book changed my life. But also a lot of times with my students, you know, 
they they feel like um, when I give them introduction to Christianity, they feel a little bit like I've thrown them in the deep end of the pool and I'm like walking away saying, just find your way to the edge and they don't know how to swim. So I'm going to give you a, maybe like a, you can jump in at three feet or five feet with some of these. Um, I No, this is great, Lisa, because it's giving, <laughs> no, it's giving us different levels. Yeah. Different, this, is, this is why I wanted all of you here. So go ahead. So I have a, so, so this is, of course, this is a classic, um, Rod Singer in the beginning. Uh, we talked, Danny and I both teach this actually. <laughs> so you're going to get double dose if you come to St. Bernard's. Um, also Rod Singer, um, the God of Jesus Christ meditations on the triune God. It's another collection of wonderful, just so amazing. So rich. It throws you in. It's got everything there. It's got the theology of childhood. It's got the Trinity. It's just got everything. So it throws you into a lot of this stuff. There you go. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, um, Matthew. So those are two texts that I feel like have been uh, really great entry points for me and my students. Um, other people I love, I love Wendell Berry. I think Wendell Berry is still an amazing entry point. I was um, a student of David Schindler when he first got into Wendell Berry. And um, so, and I continue to teach Wendell Berry. I think he's amazing. Um, Mal Madeline Delbrell, and and this is, a, I'm sure you're all of your your listeners and viewers know this, but you can go to the Comunio website and and get a lot of things PDFs on their on their yes journal website. And so I would recommend. I think you can go in there and get like some stuff from Madeline Delbrell. She's wonderful, um, and I think she's like Barry. She's a deeply Comunio centered author that is accessible, and she's living in the world and and it's very. I think her writing is very. It touches people. I remember one of my daughters, actually the one who went to DeSales, um, we did a little homeschool great books course when she was a senior and and tons of stuff. And I at the end, I said, what was your favorite? And she chose Madeline Delbrell. So that was exciting. Um, Wait, so I got to interrupt you. Your daughter went to DeSales? Yes, actually, she didn't have you for class, Mary. <laughs> well, you there. You know, she had she had Rodney Hauser, though. <laughs> no, but I think I know her. And now all of a sudden, a light bulb is going off in my head. When when I first heard your name a year ago, two years ago, whenever it was, I thought to myself, I think there was a kid at DeSales whose last name was Lacona. <laughs> and I and I thought, I wonder if she's related or whatever. But anyway, yeah. it turns out, yes, yes, yes. indeed. And you know what? She came to the Comunio um, circle meetings for a while, I think. So that's probably where. Yeah. You're yeah. And I'm sure if I saw her face, I would remember her. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, that that those are a couple. So uh, and the last thing is kind of a wild card because nobody in Comunio recommends this book. But this this is this. If you if you tried to read Theology and Sanctity, that amazing essay by Balthazar, which we've uh, kind of alluded to in all these different ways here <sighs> um, in this conversation. Um, but you find that hard rowing because he does a an amazing theological survey but it's also a lot of I also gave this to my students in intro and people were really challenged by it because you have to really have a, a pretty good knowledge of the tradition to to get a lot out of it but this is this is Balthazar this is this is what you could read instead which is this book called Water Saints by um C.C. Martindale Okay. chapters in sanctity. So Martindale uh, was a Jesuit priest. These are BBC um, uh, spoken essays that he did in the 30s, I think. They're amazing. Um, and his, I did this with students in my Nature and Grace course, and this was the this was one of the texts they most wanted to talk about. And I, I think it was a, a great entry point for people to understand 
Balthazar's vision. And um, so, yeah, that book is, and you'll love it. People will love it. So those would be some, um, yeah, some starting points. And then Adrienne, I mentioned her already. Adrienne. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Daniel Drain. Okay. Three wrecks for me. Um, two of which are, are kind of from the wrong time period, but I'll explain. First, um, Charles Pegue, The Portal of the Mystery of Hope. I know you've had Jenny Martin on to talk about this work. One of um, my favorites. That's one I would recommend too. So go ahead. This um, this like radicalized me. The only thing I would add is to read this with Space Salvi, which is just a a, a, a pro tip. Space, just Space Salvi, Benedict's Encyclical. Benedict's Encyclical. Because, well, I'll just put it this way. if you If you read this book and love it, and then if you start talking about it, you will be wildly misunderstood. So learn how to couch Piggy's language in Space Alvey, and you'll be saying what he means. But um, this can this can sound a little wild. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's troubling. It's indicting. It's 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 all those. It things. is. And trust. Listen to that advice to those who are watching. Uh, all you have to do is to look at the hate mail in my inbox after I say something that is maybe a little too provocative without context <laughs> the next day. Uh, so yes, be careful, but contextualize it. Yeah, but go ahead. Another favorite. Um, and this is, this is unfair because the, this was first published in 1980, but it's a series of letters written in the mid twenties. This is Romano Guardini's letters from Lake Como. Yes. This is the, the, the seedbed of the cultural critique that you'll encounter now in Comunio. But this is this is Guardini in sort of prophetic state saying what's wrong with the relationship between man and machine and so on in the 20s. And this is, this is I was going to end today, Danny, by saying the, the, the author we haven't mentioned that we should is Romano Guardini. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing up that book in particular. But I would recommend just about anything by Romana Guardini as, as well. Anyway, I keep interrupting you. Go ahead. And then just to finish, this will set you off too. Um, someone <laughs> who imbibed Comunio and then wrote, as it were, very practically is uh, Stratford Caldecott, Happy Memory. Yes, that's the other guy I was going to. You and I, we, we like did not engineer this in advance. It's All like, right. you me, Larry, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, Beauty for Truth's Sake. I actually just taught this to undergrads at DeSales. Um, yeah, I won't say how it went, but uh, very lovely book. This 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 informs what uh, what does Comunio do to what we think about the formation of children, what we think about the education of society, what is our vision of the human person when informed by a Comunio theology and philosophy. This is that. Um, it's not it's not uncomplicated. It's it's a dense text that actually requires some mathematical knowledge and so on. This is this volume in particular is about the the classical quadrivium mathematics. Yes. Yeah, he has other texts, but this is, I think, where I would start. He has a lot of other texts, and yeah. they're all beautiful because he was a beautiful man. Mm -hmm. uh, we all mourn his loss still, and I would recommend his writings if for no other reason that, in my considered opinion, the man is a saint. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he, you talk about a saint for our times, a man possessed of sanctity, and that was that was Strat, that was Stratford Celticott, uh, a great guy. So yeah, any anything by Strat, as we call him. Please, please read. So thank you, Danny. We, we are completely on the same wavelength. Those are three things that I was I wasn't going to recommend that book by Strat, but that now that you mention it, I think that's the best one as an entry point into into his thinking. Yes. So that's great. Uh, and I was going to say anything, anything by uh, Guardini would, would be fine. 
Uh, but I also think it's important to realize that there are non-Catholic authors uh, that uh, we can turn to that embody, you know, a certain spirit, if you will, a certain spirit of, of communio. I, I think of, uh, of authors, you know, maybe in like a C.S. Lewis or uh, a Simone Vi, uh, these these sorts of uh, characters that were just so spiritually deep and profound, even though they weren't Catholics. Uh, you can find a lot of truth in Alexander Schmemann, uh, who has an anti-Catholic edge here and there. Uh, but nevertheless, don't all Orthodox have an anti-Catholic edge ultimately somewhere latent within there that sort of springs out once in a while. But nevertheless, uh, I, I, Alexander Schmemann, I think, is, is an excellent sort of I would also recommend I, not some communal thinkers don't necessarily. It's not his, their cup of tea, but I recommend Aidan Nichols. I think as a, as a sort of secondary literature guy who's written a lot on, on Balthazar. And so I don't always agree uh, with what he says about Balthazar, but uh, I think he's a good entry point in, into some of these things as well. He's a good theographer, I call it, you know, he, he, he like, he's very good at cataloging thoughts and ideas and making them clear. Uh, I didn't coin that phrase theography. I, I, somebody else gave it to me and I, but it's stuck cause I like it. Uh, but anyway, is anybody else? OK, so we're done here with with our recommendations. Now, we've now been going for about an hour and 20 minutes. I don't like to go much longer than that. But does anybody have any? Uh, I want to go round robin one last time and get everybody a chance to get a last word in. So we'll start with Matt, then go to Lisa and Danny. You're going to get the last word. So, Matthew, any any last sort of summation words that you might want to throw in here? I think I'm going to use my last airtime to be provocative. I feel so moved to do so. But we mentioned Gordini and uh, just a recent kind of intellectual conversion moment for myself has been reading this book, actually, The Mind of Pope Francis. It's Massimo Borghese's intellectual biography of Bergoglio. Okay. Um, and when you read this, I think, because many people might might presume or might think that uh, Pope Francis's own formation lies outside the Communio sort of trajectory, or is but he was moved by Guardini. Exactly, I think Guardini, and this is this is the claim that I would make is that you can't understand Pope Francis if you don't understand Guardini, and and more to the point, or if you haven't read Guardini, more to the point, especially his philosophy of polar opposition and the the coincident of opposites and things like that. And um, there's some great work being done by someone who's. Uh, studying with Sister Gilles Goulding in Toronto, um, someone who's writing on Francis and Gordini up there, and a dear friend to us at St. Bernard's, uh, Michael Saragioli, who also gave a wonderful paper at the Communio Conference, arguing this point, right, that Gordini is sort of the godfather of Communio, deeply, deeply impactful upon Bergoglio. So just to say that, but then also others, Gaston Fassard, who was a huge luminary oh, yes. for David Bach, um, Blondel, Blondel had a huge influence on Bergoglio's um, work. So, and, and I believe it's the case, right, um, that Bergoglio's unfinished PhD dissertation was on Guardini and Polar. It was on Guardini, and I've heard mixed reports of it was rejected or that he just stopped writing it. I, but uh, whatever it is, it is an unfinished dissertation, but who cares? Yes. I, the, the, he was deeply immersed in the, in the writings of Guardini, and now he's Pope. And so, you know, uh, and and it, it does help to shed light, I think, on, you know, I, I publicly have been quite critical of Pope Francis at times. Uh, nevertheless, I think he's also a misunderstood figure mm -hmm. by by many of his sharpest critics, I think, misunderstood. 
who just see him as this wildly incoherent and inconsistent thinker. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But but I think the the opposites thing is, I think, is extremely important because mm-hmm. some people misinterpret Bergoglio, Pope Francis, as being a Peronist uh, simply because he likes to play in the sandbox of juxtaposing opposites. And so it gives the impression of his goal is to simply unsettle for the sake of keeping everybody guessing, because that's what a Peronist does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it may be actually some uh, the explanation might be more proximate and close at home and in-house. It might be uh, Romano Guardini. Exactly. And if you want to know why that is the case, read Gordini on Polar Opposition, because his whole point is that a synthesis cannot be contrived in a Hegelian fashion or a Peronist fashion, because you you because for a Peronist, right, you <laughs> cause this publicly, but then you articulate the synthesis in yourself. Right. And you in order to have power. So you sort of um, but 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 for Guardini, a true synthesis only happens organically because it needs to be cut a whole on. Right. It needs to be according to the whole. So there's there's a lot there. Exactly. And I think if you read, um, for example, another another key on this point, just a couple other things. If you read Desiderio Desideravi, his letter that sort of Pope Francis letter explaining Traditionis Custodes, and you have that in one hand and you have Gordini's Spirit of Liturgy in the other hand, it's it's all, I mean, it's like he had Spirit of Liturgy open as he was writing that. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. Probably did. Direct quote, but, um, but then finally, also, I think another thing that this book does, Borghese, who's a big figure in communal liberation over in Italy, another thing he shows is that anyone who thinks that Pope Francis is just sort of in a in a sort of simple way adopting liberation theology um that is just so erroneous you know it goes through his close encounters and his close argument with the different strands of liberation theology in latin america and it's it's extremely fascinating so anyway just to put it's it's a conversation maybe for a different day but um but just to put that on there that i think you know within this sort of breadth of of community before we think that oh you know because of some things that that we hear and because of some people that Pope Francis appointed. He's obviously concilium approach, or he's obviously, you know, outside. I think we need to to sort of rethink and maybe take a closer look. So. Interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, Lisa, last words. Um, Wow. I I wasn't sure what I was going to say, but then I listened to what you said, Matthew, and had a lot of ideas. Um, Well, feel free. We don't necessarily have to end abruptly. I guess we're going to talk about Pope Francis a little bit. I really, I think there are some very interesting connections between the the Francis pontificate and the Comunio school that are under appreciated and maybe under uh, researched at this point. And one of them is the Guardini piece, which I don't know as well. Um, But I think the connection with Ignatius and therefore um, a profound con- uh, point of contact with Balthazar is is really interesting. And, and Sister Jill Goulding, who you mentioned um, up in Toronto, she's done work in this. I think her books are really amazing. We had her down here for a talk at St. Bernard's. And, you know, she really went in on that exact point that you made, Larry, about, you know, about the lack of belief. It, um, I mean, the way she would put it is, do we believe that God loves us with a passionate love? Like, do we actually believe this? And yeah. that's, that's a um when you start to go in with that, you start to realize, yeah, I have a, a ways to go here. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think Newman is important here in this regard. Yes, yeah. So I don't know that I think they're they're those are interesting points. And also, I guess um 
I was very moved just on one more point about, about Pope Francis. I'm going to put a plug in for something that probably will be a whole nother, could be a whole nother program, but is his um, catechesis on discernment that he did last fall, um, which I think, I think if you read that in concert with Ignatius and Balthazar is very interesting. Um, and I don't know that anybody's doing that, but I think discernment, which is to say uh, discernment of spirits, which is to say, looking at the church from the perspective of unity and the work of the spirit and unifying is actually super important in this moment. And I think Francis is on that track. He doesn't always, you know, like all of us, he's living in the moment and we're all, we're all kind of continually uh, failing in our moment in history and waiting for God to take it up and to the larger whole. But, um, and even the Pope suffers from that situation. But I think that He's um he's proposing some interesting things um that deserve our attention and you know hopefully are going to be seeds that are planted. So I think there's some interesting moments of of um intersection there with with communio theology that we can be open to and and hopefully can be explored further down the road. Very good. Very good. Um okay. I, I was gonna say something about Pope Francis, but I'm going to refrain. Uh, I like your analysis, but I'm not going to refrain. I like Matt's analysis and your analysis and so on. And uh, I think it gives us food for thought. But I am a critic of Pope Francis and I, because I but I get criticized by the trads because I refuse to draw hard and fast conclusions, because unlike the trads, I would agree with both of you. His words are perfectly beautiful and orthodox and can be interpreted within this Guardini the sort of uh, paradigm of things. And, uh, and and so I have no issue with that. My issue is with what he has done in terms of Episcopal appointments, in terms of ambiguities with, for example, well, you get my point. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that cesspool of, of controversy. Uh, but nevertheless, I think there's, um, so that's why I like the analysis of the polar opposites thing, because there is this deep, incongruity and i just let it stand i said okay his words are great his actions are a bit puzzling like the destruction of the jp2 incident in rome and so forth eh, not certain i know what that's about so it, matt your thing is real some food for thought here that i think it's very interesting uh and it's why i have refused to draw hard and fast conclusions that therefore he must be a 1970 style liberal because i'm, I'm not certain that he is uh, and, and I think he defies that reduction in many, many ways. He's a complex guy. OK, he's a complex guy. And I'm going to just let the complexity stand and just say, OK, here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. I'll let everybody else draw conclusions. But anyway, Danny, you're going to get the last word now. Uh, just to plug, we've got another conference coming up in the fall, September 29th through October 1st, uh, marking the anniversary of Veritatis Splendor, as well as the 10th anniversary of the Francis Pontificate, where we want to have these conversations. We want to we want to sort this out. We want to we want to um, uh, dumpster dive and cover crop. And, and what, when is it again? When, when is it again? September 29th to October 1st here in Rochester um, on the anniversary of Veritatis Splendor and the 10th anniversary of the Francis Pontificate, kind of dealing with uh, everything that's happened, the riches that are there. Uh, we're having Angela Franks, Steve Long, um, Caitlin Smith-Gilson, and Alessandro Rovati here as, as keynote speakers. So we're hoping for a really good that. I, hopefully I can attend this year. Uh, last year, as you know, I could not because I was one health issue after another. I was suffering from extreme vertigo. 
mm-hmm. and could barely stand up. Now I've ripped up my leg. So, you know, I get over the vertigo and now I can't even walk. It's just and uh, the, I think the date for the call for papers for breakout sessions is like in a week or something. So anyone. Yeah, I, I've gotten a couple. E- I, I've gotten a couple emails about uh, submitting a paper proposal, but uh, I will not be submitting a paper proposal uh, simply because I'm running around the country these days giving papers and I don't feel like doing another. Uh, so anyway, anything else you want to say, Danny, other than the the, the conference? Yeah, besides that, which. um so when I was at the John Paul II Institute, one of the early exhortations I received was, it was actually precisely said to me personally because I was so gung-ho about von Balthasar. And it was, as it were, a, a caution against a young man's zeal. And it was to take up uh, another guide in the tradition who would be my sort of touchstone in all of my other explorations. It was a response to, to I think, uh, the perception that I, I sort of lacked a, a spiritual center at the time. And it was Father Antonio Lopez who recommended, you know, whether it's whether it's Origen, whether it's Augustine, whether it's one of the Cappadocians, whether it's Ignatius, find someone, some reliable guide in the tradition. It can eventually be Balthazar, but you're not there yet, uh, with whom you will touch base spiritually or in terms of their commentaries or whatever to guide you through this exploration. In that same spirit of communio friendship, you know, I want to exhort everyone to find a local friend to in fact sit with and discuss these things, but also not to neglect the fact that uh, there are friends to be had in the communion of saints when you are doing your, your private study and that that's the way to really engage in an apprenticeship to theology is to do it that way. Yeah. And since we're living in this age, not to ignore the friendships that can arise via interactions on social media. Uh, I know we often critique it as a, a wasteland of stupidity, but I can't tell you, for example, how many friends I have made, dear friends now, close friends, wonderful friends that have enriched me and so, through Facebook, that horrible antichrist Facebook. <laughs> and, and here I, you know, I, I've, you know, I've learned so met so many wonder. In fact, I just hosted a priest here for three days who was on the farm and stuff. Mother Bryce Evans, Diocese of Minneapolis, St. Paul, because he reads my blog, which after all is a form of social media. And, and so let's not discount that we can, in other words, what I'm saying, I agree with you completely, Danny, that, that there's a great need to hook up with a friend to be able to discuss these things, but maybe there isn't a proximate friend physically, but find a friend, you know, in cyberspace, if you have to, uh, that you can FaceTime, you can zoom, you can do this sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and it's fantastic to do that as well. I want to thank you. Okay. So let's wrap this up. Uh, my Larry, goodness. Larry, can I plug one more thing? I'm so sorry because no, no, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Absolutely. Accompanying one of the things that, that we try to do at St. Bernard's is we do a lot of like live zoom stuff so that we can actually engage in these types of relationships over a sustained period of time through our coursework yes. and so forth. So this summer, pretty much every summer we run a free summer audit where you can sit in on a graduate course for completely free, like no hidden fees or, or whatever. Um, and you can sign up on our website, but starting right after uh, July 4th, I believe it is like July 5th or something, we're gonna be doing uh, a course on the legacy and thought of Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger. And it's gonna be taught by all of our faculty. So philosophers, theologians of various stripes, um, all sitting together and just chewing on the major essential readings of Benedict over the course of his entire career. And we're going to be looking at him as a, as a theologian who, and, and a pastor who really imbibed the sort of ideal of the communio charism. So please do join us. It's, it's open to anyone from across the world. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, it should be fun. Oh my goodness. Uh, thank you so much for saying that because one of the main reasons why 
I wanted to discuss communal theology with you guys is because I, my, I have a sub agenda, which is to promote St. Bernard's School of Theology, uh, which I think is doing it's outside of maybe the J.P. Joe Institute in Washington. It's the place for doing communal theology right now. Uh, and so I want I, and plus I have a lot of former students and friends there. So but truly St. Bernard's School of Theology doing fantastic work. Uh, so I concur with Matt. Any, anything that you can access via them. Oh, before I got it, Danny, did I read you're going to be teaching a course this fall on atheism? This this summer, at the same time. Yeah. Atheism as a pastoral problem. We'll read um <laughs> we'll read Dostoevsky, a little bit of Nietzsche, a little bit of Freud. We'll end with uh Margaret Turek's book on the atonement and kind of try to wow. suss out the Ivan Karamazov, David Bentley Hart kind of all wow. of that in seven weeks. Yeah. I'd like to sit in on that. That sounds fantastic. Do it. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. So Maybe I will. I'll just be like a little bird chirping in the background. You know, I'll try not to be too annoying. But anyway, uh, but that's impossible for me not to be somewhat annoying, at least. So anyway, thanks, everyone, uh, for listening. I think this was one of the more important conversations I've ever done on my podcast and YouTube channel because it cuts to the core and the heart of what, why I started my blog, why I do these YouTube videos, why I do what I do lately. Uh, so, you know, I want to thank my three guests today, uh, Dr. Matthew Cooner, Lisa Lacona, Danny Drain. And uh, I encourage everybody to check out St. Bernard School of Theology, uh, Comunio, and uh, and uh, really dig deep, dig deep and uh, go from here. So thanks a lot for everybody for watching. And thanks to my guests for uh, for being here today. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm distracted because I'm searching for this. I'm such a Luddite. Okay, stop recording. Okay, everyone, bye-bye. <laughs>